Hey, good morning, everybody. What a, what a great morning. I really enjoyed worshiping with you. And the word of the morning is lean in. Really good. Lean in. Lean into what Jesus is doing in your life. It's so wonderful. Um, let's uh, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. And then uh, if you'll put your finger there and then go over to Matthew chapter 28 and be ready for when we hit Matthew chapter 28. So Ephesians 1 and Matthew chapter 28. Let's pray together before we read the scripture. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're so grateful for the illumination of your word. And we want it to cause our minds to come alive to know what you want for us. How we can live in resurrection life. How we can be resurrection people. We love you. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. As you know, we've been in a series called Resurrection People, and we've been discussing all of the uh, elements, all the ideas that come into a person's life when they receive Christ, and they become a person who is alive in Christ, when we become a person who, who lives in Christ, and there's special powers. There's special power that is available to you and to me because Jesus rose from the dead. It is an incredible miracle. It brings resurrection life into you and to me. And so last week, if you recall, we talked about the community of the uh, unqualified, inept, and undeserving. And aren't you glad that's true? Because that's me. I, I'm included. And uh, so this week, I want to talk to you a little bit about something called the community of wide-eyed wonder. The community of wide-eyed wonder. I want you to get your Bible out. I want you to get a little pen and your journal or a little piece of paper out. And I want you to take notes. I want you to begin to absorb what Jesus will say to you as I'm speaking. This week, you do not have popcorn in your hands as you did last week. Which is unfortunate. Last week was pop Popcorn Sunday, and I thought about this Sunday being Nacho Sunday. But then no, no. Maybe, no, maybe another time. Maybe another time. Um, so it's so great uh, to uh, study the scripture and to have pen in hand ready for what God will say to you. Ephesians chapter 1, turn over there and let's read this passage together. It says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Everybody say hope. The hope to which he has called you. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's praying for the Ephesian people. He's praying for, really as we read it, we can understand what Paul's desire was for people who knew Christ. And this is a great prayer for us to pray about ourselves and about others that we know. He says, I pray that you, your, you, your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Everybody say riches. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. Say power. We have hope. We have riches. We have power. It is an incredible thing that you've been given by the work of Jesus Christ. He, and the Apostle Paul is saying, I want you to get it. I want you to understand what you have. He says, this power 
is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, all authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. What we see in this passage is that the authority and the power that Jesus has been given was by the power that God gave him to raise him to life, to take something that was dead, a body that was dead, and make it alive again. That's the same power that lives in you. The exact same power that gives Jesus all that authority is the power that you have inside of you. If you have received the work of Christ, if you received him into your life, and so Today, I want to talk about wide-eyed wonder. I want to talk about how amazing it is, how overwhelming it is, how awesome it is, how awestruck we should be as resurrection people. My little boy, Owen, is four years old. He is number five of five children. And so he is the sweetest little boy you could ever know. He has blonde hair and blue eyes big blue eyes. He's the only one in our family that has that. My, both my wife and I, Amy, have brown hair and brown eyes. And so he is the recessive gene. And so, um, so he, he showed up in this world with this blonde hair and blue eyes, and he is a little man that is full of emotion. He may have more intensity and more emotion than any of our other children. And that's saying something because of what's going on with our other kids. <laughs> but, um, but this... But this, this little man, he feels things deeply. I mean, he is excited about everything or angry at everything. It seems like it's one extreme or the other. And so uh, currently, the thing that he is most consumed by, the thing that is most wonder-filled in his life is lizards. <laughs> he loves Lizards. You can't get enough of lizards. Lizards are, are running around all around our house in our neighborhood. And so he sees them climbing up the wall or out on the patio or out in the yard. And so he's fascinated. And him and his brother Ethan, his older brother, they're out catching lizards. And they, they, they trap them and they catch them. And, and then they, they put them in containers and then poke holes in the containers so they don't die. And then they think, oh, they need something to eat. So they put grass in it. And then they put, oh, they can't eat grass. They eat bugs. And so they put bugs in it. And then they watch the lizard eat the bug. And it's, it's so exciting. But every time, I mean, I'm kind of, we're kind of tired of it, right, sweetheart? We're, it's like, I'm, I'm done with the lizards. Because every time he sees one, we have these, this set of windows in our house that look out into our patio. He comes, I, I'll be sitting in there doing some work or doing something in the kitchen. He will come shooting around the corner and he will be his eyes will be as big as saucers and he'll be like I just saw a lizard I saw a lizard a lizard he's right out there he was green and then he came on the brick and then he was red and then he went back on the grass because he was green he's changing colors <laughs> he is super consumed, obsessed, some might say, with lizards. He is wide-eyed. He's in awe. 
<laughs> these lizards. He's in awe, truth be told, of everything that's going on in the world right now. As he sees it, as he experiences it for the first time, I think this happens to all of us as children, right? We come into the world and we do have a certain wide-eyed wonder. And yet something happens to us as we grow up. It's the harsh realities of life come upon us. We are sobered by what goes on. We accumulate information and knowledge and something happens to us, sadly. But the truth is, your life in Christ is supposed to be full of resurrection wonder. Your life, as you live it in Christ, as he lives in you, supplants all of that other stuff, comes into you and begins to convince you that anything is possible. That, that the miracle of the resurrection, of dead coming to life, changes everything. Makes everything different in your life. Causes anything and everything to be a possibility. That miracles are actually possible in your life. That miracles are possible in any situation. That resurrection wonder is what I want to talk about today. What it looks like how it can live in us. Because most of us, <laughs> many of us, we tend to live life thinking we have a brain cloud. <laughs> That's a movie reference that no one knows. <laughs> it's from a movie called Joe versus the Volcano. He realized, some, he, he goes to the doctor and he, and he goes through this process of thinking, he becomes convinced that he has a brain cloud and he's only got a certain amount of time to live. And, the, and, and he's living in this, he's working in this office complex and the, the lights, the, the, the fluorescent lights are sucking the life out of him and, and he just feels like life is a dead end over and over again, every day like the same, the same as it was yesterday. Many of us live like that, but resurrection wonder is available to us. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, and let's read the account. We've been reading each of the accounts in the Gospels since Easter Sunday, and today we're going to read about Matthew and, and Matthew's account, chapter 28, verse 1. Are you there? Say yes. yes. Verse 1, after, after the Sabbath... I want, you to, I want you to underline that little word right there, after the Sabbath, underline Sabbath, because that's going to be important as we look forward. At dawn, on the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at, at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow, and the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. <laughs> it's so funny, isn't it? But that's scary stuff, isn't it? Men like lightning come down, earthquake happens, and they sit on a stone, and then they say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then he ushers them in and lets them see 
the empty tomb. Then go quickly, he says, and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. And now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. I want you to underline those two words right there. Afraid and yet filled with joy. That's a strange phenomenon, isn't it? Being afraid and yet filled with joy. I submit to you that there is a resurrection wonder behind fear and joy merging together. If you look at this, it says, it, it, it tells the rest of the story. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings. <laughs> he said to them, they came to him, and look what they did. They clasped his feet and worshipped him. The first response of these women, disoriented from all the events, trying to figure out what on earth is happening to them. What is happening? We've just seen this gory, bloody scene of Jesus' body on a cross, taken down and then put in a tomb. Their world was upside down they couldn't figure they were reconfiguring in their minds what the world what the reality really was what was going on in their world they were struggling to figure this out they were afraid of what was happening and yet filled with joy because they see Jesus and their first response was to worship him and I want you to notice what they experience here is something called the fear of the Lord the fear of the Lord the word fear in each, if you take all the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, fear is the most frequently mentioned resurrection response. It's the most frequently um, mentioned response to the resurrection. Six times in those four stories. And I think this is probably a good description of you and me. When life isn't going like we think it should, when it's not happening, things, things are sort of off track for us. We're suddenly caught off guard and we don't know what to do. We become afraid. We're afraid when our, our presuppositions about life, our assumptions about the way things really are, no longer account for what we're up against. We don't know what will happen to us. We're afraid when reality is shown to be either different or more or completely other than what we thought it was. That's what was happening to these women. That same thing happens to you and me, but here's what I want to submit to you. I think often when that happens to us, when that goes on in our lives, that thing that happens to us, that, that disorientation where reality is either different or other or more and other, that God's in that. That God's somehow mysteriously working in that. You see, these women, they came to Jesus and they were afraid and yet they clasped him and held on to him. And I want you to notice that the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord requires reverence. It requires a holiness, a soberness, but also an intimacy. And reverence and intimacy need each other. When you put those two things together, the joy that they felt allowed them to grab a hold of him. They were scared. 
They were afraid of the angels. They were afraid of the earthquake. They were afraid of seeing Jesus. And yet, what they did in the midst of their fear was respond to the intimacy that was offered them as Jesus walked up, and they grabbed a hold of him. Same thing you and I need to do. Same thing that you and I need to do. The fear of the Lord is this biblical concept. All through the scriptures, you can look at Abraham who fell on his face as angelic visitors appeared to him. You can look at Jacob, how he wrestled with an angel, wrestled with God. You could look at Moses as he, as he saw the burning bush and God spoke to him out of the burning bush and said, that's close enough, take off your shoes because the place where you're standing is holy. And Moses hit the deck, face on the ground, face down. Interestingly enough, 30 chapters later, that's in Exodus chapter 3, 30 chapters later you go forward in the story and you find Moses speaking to God face to face as, man, as, as a man speaks to his friend. Fear of the Lord requires a reverence, a holiness, and yet an intimacy that is really important for us to embrace Eugene Peterson, who wrote the Message Bible, he translated the Message Bible, he, he, called it like, he called it this. He says, the fear of the Lord is fear with the scary element deleted. <laughs> the fear of the Lord is fear with the scary element deleted. It's like you don't know exactly what's going on. There's wonder there's wonder going on in your mind. What is happening to me? What is God doing? What is going on in the world? And yet, the fear of the Lord says, I've got to grab onto Jesus with all that I can. I've got to grab a hold of him. See, if you have the fear of the Lord, it means that you're, you understand suddenly that you're not the center of your own existence. We are not the center of our existence. If we have the fear of the Lord, we are not the sum total of what really matters. If you understand the fear of the Lord and what happens as you embrace it, we don't, we don't really know what's going on next. That's a description of the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. Now, I think it feels a little bit like, you know, when you know that God is near, but it's a little bit, it's just you're not sure what to do next, but you have this, what I like to call, holy suspicion. Others would call it faith, but I like to call it holy suspicion. That God is near. It's like there's a ghost in the room. It's the Holy Ghost. <laughs> it's the Holy Ghost, and His presence is near. The fear of the Lord heightens your, your sense of his presence and what he wants to do. And you yield to him because you fear him, but also because you love him. And so it, it, it works together in this passage. Jesus says to them, after they're bowing and worshiping him in wonder and in awe, he says, do not be afraid. Once again, he can tell they're afraid. He can tell they don't know what's going on. They can't quite figure it out. He says it again, don't be afraid. Over and over again through the scriptures, Jesus, angelic beings, God says, don't be afraid. And yet you and I let the scariness of life replace our wonder. In fact, we don't like to feel scared, and so we try to control everything. We try to 
make sure we know everything that's going to happen. We try to make sure that we are in charge of everything so that mystery begins to be drained out of our lives. The fear of the Lord can't happen then because what happens is God's in some of those things that are going on in your life. God is in the moment of your disorientation. He wants to share himself with you. If you have the fear of the Lord, what happens is it keeps, your, keeps us on our toes with our eyes open. It prevents us from thinking we know it all. The fear of the Lord keeps us from closing off our minds from new ideas that he wants to give us. The fear of the Lord keeps us from acting presumptuously. Mary and the other Mary still don't know what's going on, but they're not in control. They're in deep mystery. <laughs> and this fear that we see in the gospel records is accompanied by several under, other wonder-evoking words, words like amazed, trembling, astonishment, perplexed, frightened, wondering. Resurrection people have to have this mystery functioning in their lives for the life of God to come into them. They have to be willing to surrender to that kind of wonder and mystery. Not real comfortable with mystery, are we? But here's the issue. Each one of us are being formed shaped. What we're doing here in this place, talking in a movie theater, singing, worshiping, it's not a place where we typically just eat popcorn. It's a place that something else is happening. What we're doing here in church is not just having an event. We're not just having a social club. This is not just a place to meet some friends and to kind of make your life feel better. What we're doing here is God is shaping you and molding you. The purpose of our gathering, the purpose of connect groups, the purpose of sharing together as a church body is that you and I are being molded, shaped, formed. It's something called spiritual formation. Everybody say it together. Spiritual formation. Say it again. Spiritual formation. You, what is spiritual formation, you might say? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Spiritual formation is the process of being formed into the image of Jesus by the work of the Holy Spirit. Becoming more like Jesus. And that means there's going to be some moments where you don't know exactly what's going on. That, those curves that we heard about earlier... Tonight, or today, in the, in the message that the Holy Spirit was sharing with our church, and the encouragement to lean into those corners, some of you didn't know those corners were coming. The mystery and the wonder of the work of the Holy Spirit is what's happening to each one of us. That's why I came to Austin, because I want more people to experience the wonder of God, the life of God working in them, shaping them, forming them. Causing them to see the world differently than they normally see it. Here's the problem. Without wonder, we approach spiritual formation as a self-help project. If you take spiritual formation, because what is it? It's learning. It's growing. It's understanding what God is doing. It's, a, it's formation by the life that God wants to put into you. 
And so you begin to learn, you begin to grow, but if you don't have wonder, if you don't have mystery as part of this process, if you don't have the life-giving work of the Spirit, the life of the resurrection happening in you, at the same time, what happens is you just are working on yourself. We employ techniques. We analyze our gifts. We analyze our potential. We set goals. We assess progress. Spiritual formation is reduced to cosmetics without wonder. You know why? You know why? Because there's supposed to be a miracle happening in you. It's not supposed to be, if I could just work on this and do it better, if I could just be a better person, if I could just make it work better. Here's what happens when we drain the wonder and the awe, and the resurrection life from spiritual formation is we begin to be riddled with guilt and anxiety. Because you feel guilty because you can't make it. You feel like, I should be better than this. Something should, I should be ahead of where I am right now. It seems like I, I should be a, a better person, and I, I've been a Christian for a while now, and I don't know why I can't, why I can't get this right. There's a feeling of unworthiness, and inadequacy, when there's no wonder, when there's no miracle, when there's no resurrection life. When there's no transformation, there's just work. Spiritual formation becomes distorted into some kind of workaholic. <laughs> I'm just working to make it right. We don't live in a world that promotes or encourages wonder, sadly. Wonder is natural and spontaneous to all of us, just like Owen. When we were children, we were in a constant state of wonder. The world was new, tumbling in on us. We staggered through each day, looking, tasting. Words were wondrous to us, learning words. and learn Running was wondrous, running through the grass and running through the fields. Touch, taste, sound, all wonders. We lived in a world of wonders. Jesus gave his life and died, was resurrected by the power of God so that you could experience that same world of wonders. He wants you to live like that today. What am I talking about? I'm not saying that at work you need to scream around the corner like Owen and yell at people, Jesus is alive! I do know some people who do that, and it doesn't always work. What you have to do is you have to be willing to see that God is at work. You have to sense, you have to have a fear of the Lord, a fear of, a, a, a wonder that God is doing something behind the scenes. And here's what happens to most of us. We come to Christ and as baby Christians, we are converted, we start following Christ, but little by little, something happens to change us. We go to work. We go to work on ourselves. We come to Christ with wide-eyed wonder, with amazement, admiration, awe, but then something happens. We begin to work on our Christian walk. We start working on being a better person. After all, Jesus did so much for us that we need to do a lot more for him. He expects us to do these things, and so we better start learning how to do them. You know, all the spiritual things, faith, miracles, memorizing scripture, praying for people, not sinning, um, just being an all-around better person. Little by little, we start moving from thinking anything is possible to thinking 
I don't know why I can't do this right. Now, what am I saying? Am I saying it doesn't take any work? No. But when the work takes over, the wonder disappears. Are you with me? Where does wonder disappear most? In your workplace. When you think about work, think about the place you work, all right? When it comes to adults and working is a place where wonder is diminished, it's difficult to cultivate a sense of wonder at work because the, the things that are most important at work are what? Knowledge, competence. You want to make sure that things are in control. Things are done with precision. Work is not a place for, the, for wonder. It is a place for competence and control. And so we go to work and it begins to change the way we look at all of our life. Now, before you think I'm anti-work, God created us to work. He, in fact, his, the first story in the Bible, Genesis 1, he puts, him, puts the man and the woman right in the middle of a garden and says, I want you to take over and I want you to rule and I want you to tend this garden and I want you to take care of it. In fact, he includes Adam in his own work. He's creating this world and he creates all these animals. He says, Adam, come over here. I want you to name every one of these animals. He didn't have to do that. God had plenty of brains to name them all. He could have just told Adam what they were. Instead, he includes Adam in his work. Work is not the enemy. You were made for work. The enemy is losing the wonder in the midst of all that work, of what is going on around you. Work is good. But working on your Christian life is not the same as resurrection wonder coming alive in us. Here's the subtle and yet disastrous shift. It happens to us. The focus of God and his work, which is what happens at the beginning, gives way ever so slightly to the focus of our work in God's kingdom. It's a little tiny focus. It's just a tiny shift at the beginning. But then as it keeps going and going and going, finally the, the entire focus comes onto our work. And the good news turns into bad news because you can never do enough. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> so to be spiritually formed correctly, if we're draining the awe and the wonder and the faith and the life out of the growth process, then spiritual formation is lost. It, it, really, it really doesn't have any, any power to it. Jesus said in John 5, 39, he told the Pharisees, the religious leaders, he said, you think that by studying the scriptures... By studying the scriptures, you can receive eternal life. He said, but you can't because the scriptures point to me. And if you won't re re receive me, then you cannot receive eternal life. This resurrection life is not about what to do. It's about who you know. Once again, this is an idea we've got to grab a hold of, this relationship with Christ. And we've got to allow the wonder of that relationship to take over, the wonder of his life coming into us. We must allow him to work in us to be suspicious that he is there even when we don't know what's going on, even when we are disoriented and we're trying to reorient our lives around the reality So here's the question, how can, we, how can we give up our addiction to efficiency, to control, 
How can we give up our addiction to making sure not we have enough knowledge to make sure everybody knows it's okay and we know we're going to be okay because we've got control of the situation? How can we give up our addictions to these things for the beauty and joyous surprise of awe-filled wonder? How can we do that? That's a struggle. That's a struggle, but the nature of the gospel, what I want you to see as resurrection people is anything is possible. Since Jesus was dead and now he's alive, anything is possible for you. So we begin to look and see how can we deal with this practically. You see, you're listening to me and you're going, okay, yeah, I get it, I get it. I, I don't have any wonder. I need more wonder. I need more fear of the Lord. How do I get that? What do I do? Let, get, can you please give me three steps to make sure that I can make that happen? You see the problem? Here's one of the things. There are many things that I think can recover resurrection life and resurrection wonder for us. That we can be formed by the supernatural process of resurrection life. And as we're formed by that, there's several things that, that I think feed into that and contribute to it. One of the biggies, though, I want to highlight for you. I want to give you a big idea. We've talked about fear of the Lord. We've talked about wonder. we talked about work and how it drains, how we sometimes view our life of trying to be a good Christian. But here, there is a, there is a fundamental principle, an idea that God gave us in the Scripture from the very beginning. It's called Sabbath-keeping. Sabbath-keeping. Remember when I told you? At the very beginning, I said, underline the word Sabbath right here. It was the day after Sabbath that they went to the tomb. And they were actually going for work. The, uh, uh, Luke's gospel says that the women were going to provide some spices and some, some things to anoint Jesus' body. And here they were on their way on Sunday. Why did they have to go on Sunday and not Friday? Friday, Jesus was placed in the tomb. Why didn't they go on Saturday? Because it was the Sabbath, and it was deeply ingrained into their lives, into their culture. So they had to wait. Ooh, bummer. They had to wait. I submit to you, I'm not sure they would have found the angelic beings sitting on the stone if they'd have showed up on Saturday morning. They wouldn't have found resurrection life if they would have violated the Sabbath. You get it? Resurrection life happens. Wonder happens when there's space, when there's room. Not when you're running 90 miles an hour, violating every week, going 7, 24-7, 365 days a year. And our culture is feeding you that. Now, here's the problem. The reason we do that 24-7 thing is because we think that there's nothing else going on. It's up to us. We have to make it happen. I have to make sure that I have enough. Because if I don't have enough, what's going to happen to my kids? What's going to happen to my family? What's going to happen to my wife? What's going to happen to my husband? I, I don't know what to do. I got I to gotta, I gotta do this. I got to do. It's a scheme. It's a scam. The problem is you can never do enough. Because the more you do, you kind of want more. Sabbath flies in the face of all of that, 
all of that control, all of that knowledge, all of that competence. Competence is surrendered in the Sabbath for contemplation. Control is exchanged for confidence in God's ability. You may say that again. Competence is surrendered for contemplation. Control is exchanged for confidence in God's ability. Exodus 20, if we look at the original, if we turn over there really quickly, and we look at the original um, commandment that was given, Exodus 20, verse 8 Here's what it says. You see God giving the commandments. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm the only one. The second commandment is, don't make for yourself an idol or an image. Don't try to package me in any form. By the way, this is our problem. We want God to package, be, be, we, we want packaged God-like qualities that we can consume. One, two, three, give me the steps. Okay, now I feel better. My life is better. Okay, let's go to work. No wonder, no mystery, no life. He says, don't package me in any kind of form. Third, the third command is, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. It is holy. You should treat it as reverent. And then number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor, nor the alien within your gates. So no servants, no animals, nobody can do any work. Wow. I'm not used to that. I confess to you this is not something that I'm doing well at. Like most American Christians, push a little too hard, go a little too far, feel like I need a little more control. What am I going to do on Sunday if I haven't put the finishing touches on the message and I have to work on Saturday? It happens to all of us. We have to commit to it. And I'm going to give you some secrets, all right? You want the secrets to keeping the Sabbath? Here's some. Here it is. Look at this. Number one, preparation. You've got to prepare if you want to obey the Sabbath. <laughs> it takes a lot of work to get ready for rest. It does. It does because there's always something undone. There's always something that isn't finished. And you gotta, you got to prepare. you got to give yourself to it. you got to work hard to make sure that you're going to obey this commandment. Now, let me just stop here and say that Jesus was accused of violating this commandment because him and his disciples walked through a field and they started picking corn and they started doing some things. And Jesus' response, he told them, he said, look, any of you, if your sheep wanders away or some, something happens on your property, you go and take care of it. He said, I'm not talking about legalism. He, was, he said, man was not made for Sabbath. He said, Sabbath was made for man. In your notes, you need to write that down. It's a quote from Jesus. Sabbath was made for man. It's for you. It is from the beginning. Creation happened in six days, and then God rested. Do you think it was because he was tired? 
Now, I think there are other reasons for it. He was creating, he was creating on a, in a rhythm. He was creating cycles, six and one, six and one, six and one, six and one, six and one. It's a rhythm of life. He rested, and this idea, he created all of the earth, all the animals, all the plants, all the seas, all the sun, moon, and stars, and on the sixth day, he created what? Man. So he had created man, and then he rested. He could have rested on any of those days, but he waited till he created man so he could rest with man. My mom told me that one. That was a good one. He could rest with us. God wants you to rest in him, and he wants to rest in you. And that's where the wonder comes from. That's where the amazing resurrection life begins to be revealed, the space the opportunity to sit, to, to just not have something pressing on you and pushing you. Your open-heartedness, your wide eyes open. Allowing whatever God wants to do in you, but you have to have preparation to do it. Number two, prioritizing. Prioritizing. Here's what happens. You've got to be willing to make rest and family more important than productivity. Ouch. Rest in family, more important and higher priority than productivity. And I know that this seems in some ways counterintuitive because it is the work that actually provides for the kids and the family. But once you start down that path, what you're undoing is your trust, your own trust in the Lord and in his ability to provide for you as your source. If you don't prioritize rest and family above productivity, you will be sucked into thinking that it's only what you can produce that your family can consume. I'm not arguing against work. I, I think you've got to work hard. In fact, I think you've got to work harder to make sure that you can rest on the seventh day. So I'm, I'm talking hard work. We don't need to be afraid of hard work. In fact, we, we need to be the kind of people that will represent the hard work that, that, um, that illustrates God's desire to care for our environment, to care for one another, to, to, to care for our family, be good stewards of what he's given us. I mean, we need to work hard on these things, but then we need to be willing to surrender all of that to be open for his resurrection wonder to take over. Number three, we have to change our perspective. God can do more in six than you can in seven. You got to believe that. You got to believe that God can do more in six than you can in seven. This is exactly what I believe about tithing and giving. I believe that God can do more with 90 than you can with 100%. You express your trust and your belief and your faith in Jesus, in God and his word by spending a day not doing any work, not producing anything. We're going to talk about this more as we go on because many of you are clicking through. You're asking questions. Well, which day can I, can I take any day for the Sabbath? Does it have to be Saturday? Or can I, what, how much can I do? How far can I walk? This is exactly what the Pharisees did. All the religious leaders, they wanted it calculated. 
not talking about calculating everything down to the last minute. I'm talking about being open to resurrection wonder and putting a practice in your life that will allow the life of God to come into you over and over again, to flood over you, to wave after wave, for you to be transformed and changed, not because you're working hard at it, but because God is breathing into you. That's what I'm talking about. You've got to believe that God can do more in six than you can in seven. Final words. Sabbath is to remind us of who we are and whose we are, who we belong to. We belong to him. We are not just the center of our universe. The Sabbath is for reflection and reverence that results in wonder. The Sabbath is for responding to God's desire for you to trust him completely. That's what happens when you obey the Sabbath. You begin to trust him. You begin to actively pursue him. You begin to reflect. You begin to exercise the wonder and the reverence and the mystery. You begin to rest in his ability to take care of you. You begin to understand who you belong to who you are. And by the way, I think this is good for our kids. It is good for every one of us to do, to live a healthy life. I'm not just talking about sharpening the saw. Oh, go ahead and take a day off so you can be more productive, more productive next week. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about resting in the arms of the living God and letting him pour resurrection life into you so that you can be resurrection people all week long. Yes, let's pray. Close your eyes and bow your heads. And I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about your pace. Think about what goes on in your life. Think about whether or not you're living in wide-eyed wonder or trying to control everything. Think about whether or not you live your life always trying to be competent enough to stay in control. And whether or not the situations and circumstances in your life might be hinting that God is trying to communicate to you his mystery, his wonder, his desire to be in control of your life. Father, every one of us come to you today and we want you to be in charge. We want you to be the one that directs our steps, that directs the affairs of our lives. We don't want just knowledge of how to do things. We want knowledge of you. We want resurrection life and power to flow into us, but we don't know how to do it. We're stuck in a culture and in a society that doesn't value these things. We're stuck somehow in our own patterns and our own habits of trying to get things accomplished and make stuff happen, Father, would you help us to rediscover what it means to live in wide-eyed wonder of you, of what you're doing and what you're saying and how you're moving in us, that even though we are disoriented at times, even though we have fear, it can be accompanied by joy, and then we can learn how to live in the fear of the Lord. Help every one of us to understand that, to learn how you want to work that into our lives. Show us, teach us, lead us, guide us. Give us understanding and give us insight into this, Lord. And we choose, we choose you above these other things. We want to choose you. We want to choose to set a day aside for you. We want to choose to set aside 
a day of rest with our families and we want to choose to trust you. So help every one of us to do this. Help every one of us to live like the resurrection people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name.